Welcome, everybody. I'm here sitting here today with John Giacoma and Brad White, whom I affectionately call my nephew. We are not related, as far as we know. You're not? No. All this time, I thought. Okay, so here's the story of my last name. Not many people know this, but my family was from Iowa, and my great-great-grandfather was a twin, and his last name was Mullinex. And his brother was a horse thief. And he, this, the way the family story goes is that he was tired of being arrested because his brother would go steal horses and they would come and arrest my great-great-grandfather. And so he said, I'm going to change my name and I want the most plain name that I can find. And so he changed his name to White. Cool. So that's how we got horse So thieves. we're probably not related. Unless your real name is Molinex, and then that gets kind of spooky. No. But I affectionately call you my nephew. I'm, I'm proud to um, claim you as my own. Well, thank you. Part of my clan. Yeah. So <clears throat> welcome. Um, welcome to the kitchen table. Um, we do this little show. We have people come on and talk about various topics. We're talking uh, about substance abuse awareness this week. Um, and John and Brad were uh, gracious enough to come on. First, though, I want to talk about just your journey to get here. Tell us where you came from. Tell us how you got to this point. What brought you to Colorado Springs Fire Department? Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. Um, uh, my name is Brad White. I am I'm currently a firefighter at Station 8C. Uh, I was born and raised in Colorado Springs. Uh, grew up here. In, as far as the fire service, I knew pretty early on that, that – uh, Fire service is what I wanted to pursue uh, back to middle school during the, uh, there was the wildland fire, or up in Woodland Park, what fire was that? Hayman? Hayman. Hayman Fire. <clears throat> My brothers and I went up and donated stuff to the Woodland Park Fire Department, went in there and just saw the atmosphere and knew from then on that that's, that's kind of the, the route I wanted to go. So I pursued that. I did. I went to high school here in the Springs at Palmer High School. I graduated and uh Got a scholarship to go play for Northwestern College, play soccer. Went out there, and uh, when I was there, it was a small town in Iowa, and I volunteered for the fire department when I was out there. So that was my first introduction with the fire service as a whole, was volunteer in a small town in Iowa. Uh, from there, uh, I got a job with Eagle River Fire Protection District up in the mountains near Vail. It's up in Avon and Beaver Creek. Uh, so I did that for four and a half years before um, I tested for Colorado Springs for since I was 18 years old, you know, so I was I was uh, 26 years old when I got on. So I tested about eight times throughout that and finally got on when I was 26. And uh, that's where I'm at now. So there is an Iowa connection. There is an Iowa See? connection. Gets spooky. Descended right there. from horses. Yes, that's right. Exactly. White's not my last um, one. <laughs> White is not your last Smolinex. Um so soccer, tell me a recent story about soccer. Did you get injured playing soccer yeah. here recently? Yeah, I'm out. I tore the old hammy. Yeah, you're getting old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I've run, but I forget. I haven't sprinted in 11 years yeah. since I got done playing college ball. It's uh, not been 11 so years. Not soccer sprinted anyway? No, but we won. Yeah, so all good. we do. That's what we do here. Yeah. We, we only bring on winners. Yeah. So, again, we're doing the self-help series. Um, we're talking about substance abuse awareness this week, and you have a story to tell, and that's what brought you here today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back uh, and simply just let you tell your story. Okay. Uh, I am a fairly curious person, so if I have questions, I'll bring that up after the end, but the mic is yours, so please tell, tell your story and, and share with everybody out in, in the, the podcast world. Thanks. Sure. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll condense it to a point because there's a lot. Um, but the reason I'm on here is, is certainly um, because I think there's other people out there that can uh, can receive help through through not just me, but other people on the job that are suffering from from the same thing, you know, and I I, I do. I suffer from alcoholism. Um, 
and and it is uh, you know it's a nasty disease and it's it's the one disease that uh, I have but it tells me I don't have it so um, I'll get into that you know really f- from the beginning I was like I said I was born and raised in Colorado Springs I had a normal normal childhood I had a, a, a family that loved me I had um, you know I had a mom and dad two brothers um, alcohol however was always um, it was always something that our family turned to. Uh, my dad was a heavy drinker; uh, it still is, and um, uh, that was just a normal, normal aspect of our life, <clears throat> you know. But I didn't think anything of it as a young kid. I just see, you know, my uncles, my aunts, my 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 dad, everybody, everybody drinking, and that's kind of just the that was just the norm. So, you know, my curiosity and stuff with alcohol didn't really start until I hit um, middle school. And, and my first drink was, was when I was in middle school and when my parents would go down to bed, I would just nonchalantly, I would go grab two beers from my dad's fridge and I would go into my room and I would drink the two beers. And I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I thought, you know, I saw my dad do it and that's kind of what I thought was normal. Um, but you know, two beers at that time, it put me right to sleep. And, and, uh, and I remember, I remember wanting to do it the next day and the, the day after. And, uh, so that's where it first started, but it was never, you know, it never became an issue. Uh, get to high school. I played high school soccer there. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough as I was, I was the only freshman on the varsity soccer team at Palmer. Um, and so it introduced me to the seniors pretty quickly, uh, to the upperclassmen. <clears throat> and my first real drunk was my freshman year of high school when uh, – uh, the seniors were having a, a high school a, a soccer party, and I was invited, and I was the only freshman there. So obviously, they grabbed a hold of me, and uh, immediately uh, was uh, doing cake stands and uh, drinking with the upperclassmen. And I remember, you know, being extremely intoxicated, going home that night, waking up that next morning, feeling like crap, and remembering how amazing it was, how awesome I felt. <clears throat> you know, I felt welcomed. I felt um, I felt part of, of, of their team, um, and I loved it. So throughout high school, you know, I didn't get in much trouble with alcohol. I did what normal high school kids do. I would drink on the weekends, but I was also very focused on soccer. So it didn't, it, it didn't take me away from my, my focus on, on soccer. The only thing in high school that I look back now and I'm like, well, that's kind of a red flag, was my uh, senior skip day in, as a senior is I was transported to Memorial Central for uh, alcohol poisoning. Um, we had senior skip day. We started at nine o'clock in the morning, and by five o'clock at night, uh, I my friends couldn't wake me up. Uh, I had vomit all over myself, and they called nine one one and transported me into uh, Memorial Central for alcohol poisoning. But I woke up that next morning, and like everything, you know, I in my mind I justified it. I I was in high school. I I. Uh, I was just doing what a high school guy does, and I didn't think anything of it. So it didn't affect me too much. It didn't make me think I have an issue. It didn't, it didn't raise any red flags for me. So then my, my decision to college uh, was another example of, of my alcoholism working behind the scenes as far as I had several choices of college that I, I, I've got scholarship offers for soccer. Uh, Fort Lewis was my number one, one choice. They offered me a scholarship. I went down there for a recruitment trip and I went out with the team and it was nothing but uh, cocaine and booze. And that's what we did. Um, and I remember coming back and thinking to myself, probably you know, the smartest decision I've made is thinking, I cannot go to that school. I can't go to that school because I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself and there's no way I'm going to graduate. And there's no way I'm going to play. I can't be involved in that. So I went to Northwestern College, a small D2 Christian uh, college out in northwestern Iowa. Um, and I went there based on the decision that they had rules. You couldn't drink. Uh, you know, it was very strict. I had to do chapel three days a week. So I went out there, and uh, and the disease still didn't – it didn't stop me, right? You can get alcohol anywhere. So college is kind of where my, my drinking really started to take off. Uh, I had no parents out there, you know, I, ha- I was in a dorm. And so that became uh, where I wouldn't drink every day, but most every day I was drinking in college. And then especially on the weekends, I was always the one that was drinking to excess. 
Um, and, but it was fun. You know, I had, I was having a great time. Even the, even some of the bad decisions I made, I loved it. So, um, I got on with the volunteer fire department up there and I was on with them for three months and I loved it. It was awesome. We did training. We, we ran calls, you know, we weren't busy. We ran three calls a month, but we only went to fires and TA trapped. And, uh, that was important to me. And then I, I ended up losing that because my sophomore year in, in college, I was arrested uh, for uh, an incident involving alcohol. And uh, I was at a bar and I spent the night in jail out in Okaboji, Iowa. And then it hit the newspapers and the fire department got a hold of it. And, uh, you know, they didn't want any part of, part of that. And in my mind, I kind of just looked at it as, you know, well, they're, this is a Christian town and they just, they don't, they don't want that representation. It doesn't mean I was bad at my job, but you know, I justified everything. So three years into college, um, still I'm on a three quarter ride. So I pretty much have things handed to me and, and, uh, paying very little to go there. Um, I get asked to leave because I've got my final, final strike with alcohol. I've been caught with alcohol again for, for the third time, which, you know, that was no surprise and, uh, my grades. So they asked me to leave, um, the college. I left, I came back down into, uh, Colorado Springs. I lived with a buddy of mine and I was still determined to get on with the fire department. So I heard about Eagle river, uh, long story short, I got hired on with Eagle river. So I go up there and it is, it is hundred percent frat up there. It's awesome. It's like a college dorm room up there. I went through Academy with 10 other young, young guys and, um, graduated Academy and we lived up in Vail, Colorado. And I worked in normal 4896. So up there was, uh, again, every, every step in my life, it's always been an increase. So from college and now to Eagle river, um, my drinking took off again. I graduated the academy, no problem. I got through, started working my shift. And then that's when my four days, right? Cause up there it was 4896. So my first day of four day was a total binge. Second day was another binge. Third day was the third binge, but I would never drink that fourth day of my four day. Um, because the fire service is what I love. That was my passion. And I was determined to get down to a big city. Uh, Colorado Springs was my first choice, but I would have taken any big city at that point. You know, I, that was my dream is I wanted to be a firefighter for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so throughout all that, right, several, several decisions I made and mistakes I made up there, uh, due to alcohol. Um, and then the first one, the first one I made was we did brush patrol and, uh, you, it was a seven to seven job, 7 AM to 7 PM. And I knew I had it. I went out, I started drinking, but I also have the disease of alcoholism, which once I start, um, it's, it, it's, I can't stop. You know, I, I can't just have a beer. I can't just have two beers. So I went out and I didn't, I didn't finish partying that night till four o'clock in the morning. And I had to be up for brush patrol, but I was going to go to brush patrol because, uh, I would, I would show up to, to work regardless. Um, well, I didn't wake up till the next day at, at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I had several missed calls and, 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 uh, people questioning, people looking at the hospital, the jail, cause they all knew kind of guy I was, they knew I was a party animal and that's what I did. Um, anyways, I went and, and, uh, this was the one time where I was honest and I went to, to my Lieutenant and I said, listen, I went out last night. I was drunk. I slept through my alarm and that was probably the best decision I made as far as being honest, because it saved my job. And, uh, and again, though, I never thought for one second that I had an issue. I thought this was just shitty luck. You know, I didn't think it was, was too big of a deal. In fact, it wasn't because two weeks later I got promoted to full-time firefighter. So make a decision like that, get promoted, uh, go on, you know, throughout the, the drinking continues the same. Uh, I get about a year before I got hired here, I got arrested for my second time. I got another, um, alcohol related arrested. I was, uh, I was in a bar fight and I smashed a beer bottle over a guy's head and I've got uh, felony assault charges, spent the night in jail. 
And then I woke up that next morning with that, that twitch in my stomach of thinking that my entire life is going to crumble. And the chief came to me and said, I want you to leave the Valley. I don't want to see you up here. Go back home until this court hearing's over. So I spent, I was 23, 24 years old, living in my mom's basement, crying every night because my dream was gone. And I was in the process with Springs. I was already, I'd already taken the fire team test and I was ready to go. Um, and so at that point, I was able to stop drinking for two days. Two days I quit drinking because I knew alcohol is what, what got me to this point. <clears throat> but after that second day, it became too much. and. And I just started drinking again and things started getting better. And I started justifying in my head that if I do lose this job, I'm talented, I'll find something else. But my love for the fire service was there. It's the only thing I wanted. So anyways, the, I, I get off that charge again, you know, I get handed another bone and I got, um, I got a lawyer and I, I left there with a misdemeanor noise complaint. Um, and, and then I got hired on down here you know, cause all I had on my record was a misdemeanor. So <clears throat> I get hired on with the Springs. I finally reached it. You know, this was my ultimate goal. Colorado Springs fire was my ultimate goal and I've made it. Um, I went through Academy and you know, everybody that went through Academy with me, Giacoma went through Academy with me knows that, uh, Friday nights after Academy, my place was the place to be to party. That, that's what I did. We would work we would work our butts off through academy and then I would get to the end of the weekend and there was no studying. I, I partied the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and then I was ready for academy Monday. Um, so did that, got through academy. Uh, it got on through my fourth class year and then I bought my first home. When I bought my first house down in the Springs is really when, again, the progression, right, is, is really when my drinking took off because I finally had my own place. I finally had my own place that, that I could drink as much as I want whenever I wanted with nobody questioning me. Um, and that's what I did. I, I would drink every day. Every day I was off, but I would drink to excess every single day. Um, when I would get off shift, I would get home and that first beer was open by nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and so I continued. Continued that, I ended up meeting my, uh, my girlfriend, who is my wife at the time. We dated for six months. I got her pregnant with my son, Jack, who's now seven years old. When she was pregnant, it was, it was, it sounds bad because I love my son more than anything right now, uh, but it was the worst thing that was, could have happened to me because my, that was gonna affect my drinking. And I knew it was gonna affect my drinking. And I, even though I love my family, drinking was my number one, that was my number one love. Um, so, my drinking took off when she was pregnant. It took off to the point where my wife had three people backed up to take her to the hospital. She didn't trust me to take her to the hospital. She didn't think I was gonna be sober taking her to the hospital, but she's never confronted me with my drinking quite yet because she knows it would, you know, it would, it, it would, would have upset me to the point that who knows if we would have been together, right? Um, and so then she asked me when she was in her final week of pregnancy if I could just stop drinking for that week and I told her, I was like, it's not a problem. I'm like, of course, I got family to take care of. I'll get you to the hospital. Um, and I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. I could do it until she went to bed. When she went to bed is when I started drinking. So um, she goes into labor. Um, I am, I, I wouldn't consider myself fully intoxicated, but I definitely wasn't okay to drive. And I, I told, I drove her to the hospital, right? Cause I, that's what, that's what I do. And I, and I told her I wouldn't drink. And, and, uh, so I get her to the hospital, she goes in labor and, uh, before, before she gives birth, I had to go into the bathroom. Like my wife has her, her, her hospital bag packed with everything, you know, everything for the kid, everything for my son, everything necessity for her, you know, she, great mother. Um, and in my hospital bag, I had a log of chew and I had shooters of fireball. And so the first thing I did when I got to the hospital and, and we got there at five o'clock in the morning is I went into the bathroom and I had a shot of fireball because this is, this was a celebration, right? And that's what I'm justifying in my mind that it was a celebration. And so, uh, have a shot of fireball. She gives birth. Uh, I go back into the bathroom and I take like three shots of fireball. Then I come out and I spend about an hour with my son 
my son is one hour old and I tell my wife, I've got to go get something to eat. I'm starving. And, uh, I, I leave the hospital and I go to the nearest bar and I continue to drink there and I continue to get intoxicated and I come back to the hospital and my son is now six years or six hours old. My wife has been there with him and I'm hammered drunk. Um, and I could see the disappointment on her face. I could see the frustration and I know it now, right? Cause she's totally justified for it, but I didn't know at the time. Um, I thought, again, I thought it was normal. So the, uh, anyways, we get home and, and I'll fast forward to, uh, the drinking never stopped. The drinking continued. Uh, my son was six months old at the time. It was December. He was born in June. I went to a Christmas party with my brother and I got, uh, you know, I got my normal old fashioned completely hammered. I had no self-control. I had no control of it. Um, I got drunk. I came home and I wanted, it was three o'clock in the two or three o'clock in the morning. And I wanted to go hold my son because I'm a good dad. That's what I was thinking. You know, I was a horrible dad. And, uh, I went and woke my son up six months old. He starts crying. My wife wakes up and comes in and is like, what in the hell are you doing? And I'm like, I'm holding my son. And she knew I was drunk and she saw it and she's like, she's asking me to put him down, put him down. Like you're drunk, whatever. And, and so her and I get in a fight and this is, this is where my first experience came of, of getting sober is, um, her and I got in a big fight. I went to my nightstand table. I grabbed my gun from the night nightside table and I told her I was going to kill myself. Took the gun and I walked out of the house. I had no intentions on killing myself. I had intentions on making her feel bad for <laughs> whatever she was doing, right? Which was nothing wrong. Uh, so I took the gun outside to the alley and then it crossed my mind. I'm like, well, what if I did? What if I did just do this? And this thought would have never come across my mind if I wasn't drunk. So I'm not suicidal. Um, and I'm like, no, it's not a good idea. But I'm like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fire this gun off in the air. So she thinks I killed myself. Um, and then, right, that's the crazy things that my mind's telling me. I ended up not doing that either because I knew she'd call 911 and I didn't want you guys to show up and see me firing a gun in the alley. <laughs> so, so I didn't do it. I went and passed out at a friend's house. I woke up that next morning and I knew it. I knew right away. The second I woke up, I'm like, I'm in deep, deep. This is not good. I go home. She's, she's sitting in there. She's still crying. And she said, I can't be with you. I can't be, if you don't stop drinking, I can't be with you. And, and I loved her and I loved my son but I loved alcohol even more. And I told her, I said, I'm done. I'll quit. I'm not going to drink. Um, so I got sober. I was sober for nine months. I didn't drink for nine months. Didn't have a drop. It was, and I didn't ask anybody for help. I didn't go to anybody. It was the most miserable nine months of my life. Um, if you would ask my wife, if she would have rather had me been drinking, I guarantee you she probably would have said I would have rather had him be drinking because I was awful. I was miserable to be around. <clears throat> I didn't like her. I didn't like my kids. I didn't like myself. Um, I didn't know how to handle myself without alcohol. So nine months goes by and I convince her that I've got this thing under control. I can go back out. I can, I can drink. I can drink like everybody else. I can drink like all my friends. And she agreed to let me try this. And so, so I did. Um, and I started off, I bought a case of Bud Light and I opened a, one Bud Light, I drank it and that was it. I didn't have anything else. And the next day I had one Bud Light and that was it. And so I'm in my mind, I'm saying, I've got this figured out. But in the back of my head, the whole time that I had that beer, all I'm thinking about is when I can have my next beer. So I kept it under wraps for a month. I was doing well, but just like everything in this disease is this is a progressive illness and it always gets worse. It never gets better. So for me, the Bud Light turned into now I would get IPAs that had, I didn't care what it was. I just wanted the highest alcohol volume. So I drank the Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA and then the Crank Yanker, which was 10.2% or something alcohol. Um, and I would drink one of those. And then I started drinking two of those. And then further down the road, it becomes to, I'm drinking a 12 pack of these Imperial IPAs that are high octane alcohol volume and I'm starting to get in trouble again. She's starting to see it. And she's like, you're drinking a little too much. And I'm like, oh man, she's watching me drink. And I'm like, you're right. I am. So then 
um, I would I would get the Imperial IPA still, and I would drink half of it, and I would wait for her to go upstairs um, to get the laundry or to grab a kid or something. And as she was gone from the room for a little bit, I I would go and into our beer fridge and I would pour vodka into my beer. So I would have half of an Imperial IPA, half vodka in that beer. And I would sip on that beer because she thought that was the only beer I had, uh, which, you know, it turns into nothing, but she's smarter than that. And she knew I had to have had more by the time I'm slurring my words and whatnot. So, you know, that, that continued. And, and then where it associated with the job a lot is uh, there's obviously things that we see and I see on this job that aren't normal, right? So I went through a stint of seeing things that were happening to kids that were that were horrible. And I can, I'm not saying it didn't affect me, but what I did, it didn't affect me to the point of where I had to, it affected me to the point where I, I justified with myself, like since I'm seeing the things I'm seeing, um, I'm justified to drink. And I took off, you know, I, I just, I started, uh, drinking heavy again. I became a, a, a vodka drinker. I became an everyday drinker. Um, nights before shift, <clears throat> where I used to not drink the night before shift because I love this job so much, is I was drinking till four, five o'clock in the morning. Um, and that became normal. My function became normal for me to just be hungover. I was either drunk or I was hungover. That was all. Um, and it finally, when she, she saw this, our relationship was bad, right? It wasn't good. She knew it. We went up to Vail for a vacation with some, some fire friends from, from the job here, my wife, and I made a horrible mistake up there. Um, and that's when I woke up that next morning and I knew the same thing. I thought to myself, this, this is not good. And this is going to get in the middle of my drinking. And that's all I cared about. That's truly all I cared about. So that next morning, waking up in Vail, I walk into the room and, and, uh, she told me that she wanted me to move out when we got home. And immediately I knew that couldn't happen. And, but I also didn't want to give up my drinking. So I told her, I said, I'm suicidal, total lie. I completely lied to her. I wasn't suicidal. Um, I told her I was suicidal because of the things I've seen at work. Not true. It wasn't true at all. Um, I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to get in the middle of that. So then she felt bad for me, right? How jacked up is, is the point where she's now feels bad for me from a complete lie I've told her. Well, now she wants counseling. She wants us to go to counseling together. And I'm like, anything, of course, just, I, I have to, I have to keep drinking. So we go into a, a counselor and she starts asking me questions about uh, my drinking. And of course I tell the counselor what I'm drinking, but I divide it in half. I don't tell her the full extent of what I'm drinking. I cut it in half because I can't have her tell me I have an issue. So I cut it in half and I told her, and she said, uh, you need inpatient alcohol. You're, you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, holy, I only told you half of what I was drinking. I didn't even tell you the full extent of what I was drinking. So that started triggering in my head where I thought I was like, maybe I have an issue. Maybe I have a problem. That's the first time out of everything I've done in my life. And, and people that know me know that I was crazy. I was crazy with the things that I did, but that's the first time that I've been like, I've been honest with myself is if this counselor is telling me that I'm probably an alcoholic, and I only told her half of what I was drinking. I'm probably an alcoholic, but it didn't stop me. Um, I continued to drink. And so for the last three months, the last three months of my drinking uh, consisted of, again, it was an, I was an everyday drinker. Um, I was a vodka drinker because not because of the way I liked it or the, the, the taste of it, I liked it because it gave me the least smell of alcohol and it was easy for me to drink a lot of it. Um, but for those three months, every night, every night I looked in the mirror and I cried for three months. Every night I stood in that mirror. I cried, 
I, just, I knew I had a problem, but I didn't know what to do. And I sure as hell wasn't going to come to you guys. I wasn't going to come to the job. I wasn't going to go to anybody else. I wasn't going to go to my wife uh, because I didn't want you to know. Um, I was embarrassed. I was extremely embarrassed by it that I couldn't control this. And I was going to get, I was going to lose everything I loved. I loved my family. I did, even though I didn't show up from the outside, I loved my family and I loved this job. And, uh, so for three months I went through that until finally it was my decision. And I said, I have to do something about this. And this is where the, you know, certain things, uh, help certain people for me. I couldn't do it on my own. I did my nine month stint earlier and I couldn't do it on my own. The only thing I found that helped me in this is after that three months of crying in the mirror every single night as a grown ass man, I, I went and talked to other alcoholics, went and talked to another alcoholic. And when they started talking to me, I was like, my God, that's me. I'm like, that is me. Um, and, and through talking to another alcoholic, it was so much better than I can talk to my wife. I can talk to a counselor. I can talk to you, but nobody's going to understand it. They may be able to understand the disease of alcoholism on a, on a book, on a page, but they don't understand it to the extent that another alcoholic understands it. So that in itself, uh, set me up for success. Um, I was able to talk to people that are like-minded that have the same disease that I have that tells their brain to do the same thing that I do. Um, and, and there's, there's something to be said about that. Like I, like I said earlier, I was extremely embarrassed and I wouldn't have been on this podcast. I wouldn't have been doing this two years ago. Um, but now I'm at a point in my life where I've been sober now for three and a half years. Um, and coming from a guy that my life revolved around alcohol and all I wanted was that next drink <clears throat> and all I ever fantasized was about that next drink. Um, I'm the happiest I've ever been. And there is, it's crazy coming from me because this is not, I would not be. And again, the people that know me, <clears throat> know that that was my life. Like I couldn't imagine when I first quit drinking, I thought, how am I going to be at my son's wedding? My son was five or four years old when I quit drinking. And I thought, how am I going to be at his wedding and not drink? How am I going to go to these fire functions? How am I going to go out with my crew and not drink? How am I going to be around people and not be intoxicated? And it was a huge fear of mine and it lasted for a little bit. But now the position I'm in, and, and, and throughout my recovery and the things I've done, uh, I'm in every one of those positions. I go to every one of them. I go to weddings. I go out with my crew. I go out with other crews. I go out with my friends that still drink and I have zero desire to drink. Um, and my, and for that, my life is not anywhere close to what it was when I was drinking. My life is a hundred times better than what it's ever been. And and we know that I love drinking, you know, that's what, that's what made me happy. But for the last three and a half years is I found a way to, to overcome this disease and, and work a program for me that, that puts into my mind with like-minded people that it's not just me, right? Because that's the other thing I thought is I thought people that were alcoholics are losers. They're total losers. You know, they, They've lost their home. They've lost their family. They've lost this. I've got everything. I've got a high paying job. I've got a car. I've got two houses. Um, I've got a family. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys until I realize when I start talking to these people that there's way more successful people than me in those rooms, way more. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's just, it goes to show that if you, you kind of conquer your fear and you put yourself out there and you ask for help, that things can change. So again, I went, I came onto this broadcast because I want people to confront me. And there have been, 
several people on this job that have asked me how to do it. And I am more than happy any time of the day, any day of the week, and more than happy to help anybody in this process. If you have two days on the job or if you have 50 years on the job, I don't care, you know, because it's not, uh, it, I am, I'm here to help and I know there's other people to help and I can at least point people in the right direction of getting hopefully half of what I have right now and the feelings I have about life um, and share that with other people. Talk to me a little bit about the support you needed. And it's different for everybody. You know, we talked to, to Brian Vaughn a little bit, and he had a very similar journey to what you have, but his, where he found help and where he found support is different than you, where he found help within the job, you found it without. So how important is that support system to have around you right when it started, whatever that may be, to where it is now? Sure. <clears throat> um, yeah, it is important. You know, my number one supporter has always obviously been my wife. She's greatly supportive. She's amazing. Um, and the, the benefit I had with my wife was her mom has been sober for 25 years. So I was able to talk to her. Um, and I was able to be pointed in the right direction by her. Um, and I was able to talk to other alcoholics outside of this, outside of this job and then come to find out I'm able to talk to other alcoholics within this job, not knowing. Um, and that was the biggest thing for me was, was once I let go of my ego thinking that I'm so special, I shouldn't have this alcoholism and realizing that a lot of other people have it um, that are just like me and if not better, um, is that's the support where really, like I said, it's the, the a group of like-minded people. Obviously, it was great to have my support for my wife, but she'll never understand alcoholism. She'll understand it to my extent, you know, and she's listened to my story, uh, but she'll never understand it to the point of uh, if I'm to talk to someone like Brian Vaughn or John Giacomo, right? Mm -hmm. those, are, those are the ones that, that understand what I'm going through. And other people out there that may be listening to this have to understand that the my story may be totally different than yours but it's probably very similar to a lot of people that may be listening to this and and realizing that there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel that that the support that you will get from uh people like myself along with a lot of other people is is tremendous and that's it is important because you feel very isolated and alone, like you're on your own little island when you're in the midst of this disease. You feel like you're the only one that has it, right? I was, I was convinced on my, before I got sober that I was gonna be the only one that was sober on the job. I didn't think anybody else would be sober, but it's not the case, you know? Uh, there's a lot of us that struggle with it. <clears throat> Talk to me a little bit about the difficulties you have now, because what what I don't think people understand is <clears throat> it's not easy. Like it's not easy to go day by day, and and um, but what do you get from it? You know, you know what I'm saying. Like sure. you're working hard and you're grinding every day to get through this disease, but you get something from it. And what is that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the 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 first couple months almost the first year of my sobriety wasn't all gravy because I I still I still wanted to drink at times um, and but over time when I continued to work on my recovery I got this sense of of peace and ease within me that what I get from it now is there's nothing nothing in this world right now that could ever happen to me, to anybody else, uh, that I would ever want to drink over. I, I live a life now where, you know, I, I really focus on my family. I focus on uh, doing what I'm supposed to on the job. And there's a, a, there's a sense of peace with that that comes along with recovery that is, is almost undescribable unless you experience it only thing people can take is my my word right now right telling them that 
that what I've gotten from from this recovery is the the sense that good days or bad days or horrible things happening, whether it's financial or family issues, is I've maintained this level of sobriety where uh, I haven't wanted to drink over it. And that's completely different than my 28, 30 years of life that I was having, that I was drinking, you know? Um, so there's something to be said about that, that sense of peace within you of, of just not wanting, not wanting that next drink. Tell me a little bit about recovery. Like what, what was, what was recovery for you? Was it, uh, and I say simply, but it, is it, was it one thing or another? Was it going to Alcoholics Anonymous? Was there inpatient treatment? What, what was recovery for you? And I know it's different for every person. But. Sure. And, uh, you know, for, for me, um, uh, I'm part of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and you know, there's, there's anonymity to this. Um, and, and, but there's, there's several different ways of, of going about it, right? There's, there's multiple ways of, of, of conquering this. And we have people on the job that have done it differently. Um, for me, that's what I found that helps. That is, uh, for me, that was the only way I could do it. Uh, I had to get to a point that I, I was so desperate that I would do anything. And again, it's, uh, that's something as far as, as that side goes that I would be more than happy to talk to anybody about. Um, and just cause I talk to you or you may have questions about it, or you may think doesn't mean I'm going to sit there and say, Oh yeah, dude, you're an alcoholic. You gotta go. You've got to go do this. That's not the case is I'll tell you what I did. I'll tell you where I was. And they are, they kind of have to determine on what, what route they want to go. Um, but this is the only thing i found that helps me. Yeah, and it's in talking to alcoholics in the past and drug addicts in the past, um, one thing I find in common is they couldn't be, begin recovery until they, they, they were held themselves accountable to it. And it's like the first step of every, every you know, 12-step program is admitting you have a problem. And so it's kind of owning it and recognizing, okay, this is on me, and now I want to go do it. So it's not anybody I can't tell you to go. Hey, you need to go get treatment. Right. If you don't want it, then you're not gonna you're not gonna follow Absolutely. through it. But if you own it, then then you're on your way to recovery, and that's kind of your rock bottom moment, and away you go. Yeah, my you know my my wife my wife told me I was an alcoholic when my you know when my son was born. She kept telling me I was an alcoholic, and it pissed me off. You know, mm -hmm. it, it didn't. Uh, she's, she's known I was an alcoholic way before I did, you know, but mm -hmm. typically people in your life are the ones that know before, you know, you know, and, uh, but it did nothing. She, if she told me I was an alcoholic, it didn't matter. It didn't matter until those last three months of me drinking where finally I was at a point where I was like, you are an alcoholic. I had admit, admitted it to myself. You know, I lowered my ego. I, I became vulnerable to the point where I'm like, I need help. I need help. And that's not me either. Right. I don't, I, we don't want to ask for help with anything mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, certainly not this. What, uh, and I'll bring John in a little bit on this. What resources do we have available, um, for folks in the fire department to, to help with some of these things? Yeah. Uh, so the, I guess frontline working, Working deeper, um, right up front is kind of each other. This is the easy answer, right? Like uh, whether it's officially through our peer support team that we, you know, we have our rosters hanging up in all the stations. You know, word of mouth, we can probably pick one out of every station out there. There's 34 of us about to get up to close to 50 next year um, joining the team. Uh, that's kind of a front line. Just who do I call? I need some help now. I don't know where to go beyond that. Um, so what the peer support team can kind of do is it might be as simple as just Brad and I need to have a conversation and maybe he feels better after that. It may be Brad identifies that I need help beyond this and we can help navigate that a little bit. So our peer support team is one to be there for the immediate need. You know, what do you, if it's a conversation, let's meet for coffee. Let's, um, let's have a deeper conversation and to help navigate once we get beyond that, if it's a, to the point where 
we're not necessarily there to solve that problem in completion. It may be just being in tune with what resources are available. Um, so some of those are local. So we've got a lot of, um, you know, the, from the AA model to other models that are out there, um, we have a, a good variety that our peer support team's in tune with. Um, we have outpatient and inpatient resources we can kind of plug people into. And we try not to do a one-size-fits-all. You know, if you have that issue, we're going to send you right to this person every single time. You know, we talked about Insight Services before in other podcasts where we have that as a frontline resource phone call away. Um, but what we don't ever want is somebody to reach one resource, find out maybe that's not the perfect model for them, and then give up and go right back to what they're doing. Um, so some of it is just having a group of people that are in tune with a variety of different resources, whether that's AA, whether that's inpatient. Uh, we have Denver Springs up in um, the south part of Denver that we've had successful inpatient and outpatient experiences with, uh, and a bunch of other organizations locally that we can go into detail with folks on as we kind of understand the problem a little bit. Um, so I'd say our first thing is just use each other. There's inevitably there's somebody at your station, at your kitchen table maybe, who either is a peer supporter or is familiar with the challenge you're going through. You know, and that's our whole point of putting a face to this with Brad and with Brian, with myself, uh, with all of us that are kind of stepping in to this uh, topic this month with uh, substance abuse awareness and suicide awareness last month, uh, kind of putting a face to it and saying, you know, it's, like Brad said, the ownership part, um, the uh, not being afraid to ask for help, letting somebody else kind of navigate that with you, and then having the humility, having the willingness to own the problem, but also seek out the resources. So you don't have to know what those resources all are off the top of your own head. We're not never in a position to have all of those at the forefront of our mind when we're going through something like what Brad's describing, but when somebody else can help you navigate those and say, let's try this. And if that didn't work, there's another thing out there. There's just never a, a brick wall we hit where we wash our hands of it and say, that's as far as we can go. Um, we've even had success with IFF resources, um, center of excellence out East, um, in Maryland. And also, uh, there's one starting up in California right now where they can do inpatient, that is modeled to the person. It's not just a, let's take you and drop you into this model and, and you have to follow this these steps. If that's not the way somebody's wired, there's a bunch of different models within that facility that they help with. So you see a bunch of different counselors, a bunch of different doctors and figure out a model that works for that person. So in the, I suppose the more extreme examples, we've gone that inpatient route as well. All of that is to say there's something for everybody. There's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution, but there is something for everybody. So there's never a reason to give up or kind of beat our head against the wall and say there's nothing out there for me. And I would say uh, take that first step, you know, yes. and talk to that person, whether it's, you know, Brad or Brian or you or even me. I, I haven't experienced alcoholism, um, but I'm certainly not going to judge you. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you how it should be or how it's going to be, but I can get you in touch with the right people that can find the help that you need. Um, yeah. So who, whomever you feel comfortable with, at least make take that first step and ask the question or say, hey, I need to talk. And there's a lot of people available both within peer support, without peer support, with whomever you feel comfortable with to, right. to, to help you down, take that first step down that road. And I think that's what helps us sustain it as well. I mean, I part of my reasoning for being here with Brad today is twofold. I mean, the biggest one is just supporting a friend. I know the story he's going to tell, so I want to be here to support him, but also to speak to some of the consistencies that we see from the peer support angle, from just the, um, the ongoing peer support. It's not just the somebody realizing on that, that day zero, that this is where I need to, I've reached that point for myself and I need to do something about it. It might be three and a half years down the road, Bradner is still having these talks. You know, I've next month will be 12 years for me since I touched a drop of anything. And I still gain a lot of support from just the conversations and having a group of us that can speak openly about this. And, you know, and the message of coming on here and having that conversation publicly is if somebody else, if one person can benefit from the stories that we're trying to share, then that makes it a story worth telling. And we knew the value that Brad's is going to have. I mean, if, like Brad mentioned, we came on this job together. So I've, I've known him better part of 10 years now. And he's, we've talked before about the high functioning alcoholic and 
I mean, Brad's a guy that's been a rock star on this job from day one. I mean, never the guy that you would pick out from his job performance and say he's got issues. Just the opposite. It helped mask it in a lot of ways. You say, well, like Brad's a high performer. I mean, he's nothing but helpful to others, trains everybody. He's a high performer on every every type of call we could go on. He's a high performer around the station, and you could easily convince yourself, like, Brad's fine. He's And it speaks to his ability to convince himself of that, too, that um, – no, I, I'm doing fine. Like, I'm not that guy on the street. I'm not that guy, like he said, you know, it's I'm not that loser, the guy that's life's falling apart in front of everybody's eyes. Um, it's easy to convince yourself using that, that, no, I'm successful. I'm not having a problem. Um, so those kind of check-ins with each other is kind of what helps sustain. I know it helps for me. It helps for other friends that we are in the same circle with um, to address their issues going on, uh, going forward as well, not just the let's get you help. They might be a few steps into that process and kind of keeps each other in check. Okay, Brad. Thank you, sir. Anything else you'd like to add here that I I'm forgetting? Um, no, I think the, the only, the only thing is, you know, if somebody is listening to this or watching this, however they view it. And, uh, you know, that question crosses your mind. I can't, I can't speak enough about, if you come forward to me and you're talking to me, there's not a single soul on this earth that's going to know. There, it, there is a part of the anonymity that is is so valuable because, um, again, that's what that's what deterred me was was I didn't want my problem one to be other people's problem and two for other people to know my problem. Uh, that was a huge fallout of my of what took me so long to figure this out. So, like I said, if I know you or if I don't know you, it doesn't matter if it's your wife, your your husband, your it's you, whoever it is, I'm more than willing to have a conversation. And that judge-free zone is a judge-free zone because I've done plenty of messed up things in my life due to alcohol. Yeah. So I have no, no barriers of, of listening to you and, and maybe pointing you into the right direction. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you can at least experiment on a couple things. All right, John, thank you. Thank Brad, you. thank you. I'm proud of you. Glad to call you my nephew. Yeah. So yeah. keep in touch, and we'll uh, see you on the other side. Sounds good. Thank All right. you. Thanks. Take care.